Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that it's interesting because a lot of the reason it wasn't well-received, I think, is because it makes us slightly uncomfortable to be confused, to not know where we are and how we got there, right? So most people don't like to sit with that discomfort. And that's a lot of the problem with the racism in our country, is that people don't want to talk about it or accept that it exists or or the extent to which it exists because it makes them uncomfortable. But that change and that growth are uncomfortable. It's like the, the change and the growth that Mary and, and all the other characters went through. It's If you're always comfortable, that means nothing is changing. And that's what we as a country are grappling with. And that's what all the characters in this play are grappling with. And I think it's really interesting. Isn't it interesting that's called Merrily We Roll Along? I mean, that yeah. is almost the most Sondheim part of the entire yeah. show. Yeah. Is that it's very deceptive. change is so uncomfortable, the show is uncomfortable, and yet every, and you, just, you know, 20 minutes or yeah. so, it's like, Merrily We Roll Along. Roll. Yeah. But that's it. That's life, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you don't exactly. wallow in that. What else are you going to do? Sludge through it grumpily? Yeah. Like, that's not fun either. And that's why we for- we forget that we have a problem so often. Is because we get in those those happy, I'm not going to think about it, merrily moments, and then we go, oh, wait a minute. But there is a real issue that needs to be dealt with. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking about Merrily We Roll Along with Miss Jennifer Shelton. Well, hello hey, Jen. there. Hi, Jeffrey Scott Parsons. Now, everybody knows out there that one of my favorite things about this show is figuring out what guest is going to talk about what show with me. And we got to have like a pretty extensive back and forth about what show you thought would be a good fit for you. So we came upon. No, not at all. (laughs) But like it was a very conscientious choice. And I want everybody out there to know that that we picked this musical for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. But it also made me wonder as an actress, which you are an amazing actor, singer, everything. I mean, you even dance. Like, I I don't know if you would consider yourself a dancer, but like you carry yourself on stage like a dancer. Well, thank you. Anyway, I was wondering if in your career you are that specific about projects you take on. 
Do you know, I would like to be. Yeah. And more and more I am. I turn a lot more down. Mm-hmm. But I think it comes from having a career where, as a black woman, I just sort of had to do what people allowed me to do and what Oof. people accepted. And yeah. um, so I think I've gotten to a place in my career where I'm much more specific. And, and, and you know, as a black woman, unfairly or not, it you represent your community. And so I'm really conscious of how what I'm doing represents my community and how it represents me and whether it furthers my community or me. I think in general, we have a sense of scarcity as performers that it's like, if I don't take this job, I'm never going to have a job again. Like that already. Mm -hmm. But then I also remember we had Sharon Catherine Brown on the show. And one of the things that she said that was very profound to me was as a black woman and as a black performer in general, you're always made to feel like they're taking a chance by hiring you. Oh, absolutely. That like, like you're the interesting choice. Yeah. No, you have to prove yourself. Yeah. And so to add that layer on top of everything else, it's like that's exhausting. Yeah. I think that's why I, I never felt like I truly deserved any role I've ever played. Oh, yeah. Seriously? I, I've always, yeah. I've always felt like I, I had to work really hard to prove myself and I'm never quite sure that I did. Wow. So I think that's that probably feeds into that idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would wholeheartedly agree. And are there roles, like, is there a role in Marilee that you would love to play or? Oh, I would love to play Mary. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've always, I think that's why this show and her role spoke to me is because I've always been that odd girl out, you know, that, huh. that just quirky, unexpected friend. Because whenever you have the quirky character, it's the character actor role that we really don't get to know much about. Mm. And in this case, we do get to sort of learn more about her. And I like that because that's something I relate to more. I play a lot of, you know, before ingenues and now leading ladies. And I always feel like their story is a little bit false for me because I'm more on the quirky character side, if that makes any sense. When did you see Merrily We Roll Along? I assume you've seen it. I've only seen, I think, three productions of it. And I think they've all been the revival version. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak to the original version. Good. Actually, that works for me because in <laughs> preparing for this, I read the revival script. Oh, okay. Same page. So, yeah. Are you a Sondheim fan in general? I'm a Sondheim worshiper. <gasps> really? I am. Are you, like, not? No, I love him. Are you kidding okay. me? I was, like, that nerd in high school who was like, I listen to Passion. I don't go to prom. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't. Is this what before. you call love? <laughs> Well, I'll have to share with you my sad prom story sometime. No. But, uh, no, I think he's a genius, right? I mean, he's yeah. one of my favorite composers. Everything he does is just so clever and smart and unexpected and evocative and, and elucidating. It's just, I feel like he's an actor's composer, if that For makes sure. sense. I mean, yeah. I've spent years hearing or, or even singing one of his songs. And then one day I go, oh, that's yeah. what it's about. Oh, wow. I love yeah. that. No, so there I, are several of his shows where I find the older I get, either they mean more or they change, yes. and it's still as profound. Yeah. Little Night Music is a really good example of that, where I just, mm-hmm. it went way over my head the first 53 times I saw it. And by the way, Little Night Music was his romantic comedy. Like, that was his rom-com. Yeah, yeah. which is like, <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous. Totally. I just, I, I like to work 
for basically everything. But, you know, when I see a show, I, I want to have to work. I don't want to just sit there and have it wash over me. I want to really have to pay attention and figure it out. And I feel like you can't really appreciate Sondheim without doing that. When I was thinking about this, I feel like the first great musical theater auteur was Oscar Hammerstein II. Because Oscar Hammerstein was very specifically choosing the stories that he did for a reason, Mm -hmm. for the public, and also, you know, to have hits. And then I would would honestly say that the second is Sondheim, which is interesting because he was in many ways, Oscar Hammerstein's student, mm-hmm. his protege. But you you see how he as a composer was doing these really, really interesting works. And it seems like he was doing it for him as an artist because that's mm-hmm. what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to explore. <clears throat> many times these shows were not hits. In the case of Merrily We Roll Along, total flop. And yet here we are talking about it in terms of having lasting power. Right. We're talking about this show that came from a season on Broadway that included Nine and Dreamgirls and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor mm-hmm. Dreamco. And mm-hmm. here I am of all of those. We're talking about Merrily We Roll Along first. So like, right. the, there's something interesting there. And, yeah. and I think Merrily We Roll Along also reflects a lot of what that requires of a person to be in an industry because it's still an industry. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, I think Merrily has a lot of Sondheim in it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he was ever interested in being commercial, right? I mean, it, his no. work was about you know social commentary, political commentary, self-introspection. I don't want to say that he didn't care how it was re- received, but that wasn't his primary concern as it was for so many of the others. For sure. As a composer lyricist, his first big hit was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which most critics kind of poo-pooed the score, saying that it was unmemorable. Mm-hmm. And that show is also the most maybe entertaining, traditionally yeah, entertaining yeah, yeah. for an audience. So it's interesting. I wonder if at some point he was like, well, I, d- I looked out for the audience and they hated my work. So now I'm just going to write work that I'm really passionate yeah, about. Yeah, I and hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it worked. What Whatever he did, it worked. You know, if you do what's true to you, you'll be successful. For sure. Merrily We Roll Along opened in November of 1981. It did not have a pre-Broadway tryout and instead had a very, very lengthy preview in which a lot of changes were made because it was it was kind of a hot mess <laughs> when it when it first started previews. Now, Sondheim and Hal Prince, who was the director and who we've talked about before on the podcast, They had had these amazing collaborations, most recently with Sweeney Todd, that was a huge hit, both critically and commercially. So when it came time to look for a new piece, from what I understand, Hal Prince's wife planted a little seed about possibly doing a show about teenagers. Mm -hmm. And what that led to was finding this old play by Kaufman and Hart. Kaufman and Hart, a playwriting team, they did The Man Who Came to Dinner, you can't take it with you. All of these famous old plays that are that are super fun. But they had written a play in 1934 called Merrily We Roll Along. And the big gimmick about this show, which was essentially about an artist selling out, was that the story was told from ending to beginning. So it started out with the guy being a huge jerk and then ended up showing how he had started with like the best of intentions. Now... At this point, by the time my listeners hear the show, we'll have already covered 
Anything Goes. And if you all remember, Anything Goes also came out in 1934 and was one of the biggest hits of the entire decade. Merrily We Roll Along, the play, was not a huge hit. Obviously, we were coming right out of the Great Depression. People were interested in something like Anything Goes with the zany characters and all of the energy and the escapism, right? Merrily We Roll Along was not where it was at. And so even though it was, you know, well-reviewed, it didn't last very long. It kind of follows the same pattern in 1981. They decide to musicalize this show and right from the get-go start making bad decisions. <laughs> Are you aware? Do you know about some of these decisions? Why don't you, you educate me? Well, first of all, they decided to cast it with all teenagers. Oh, see, that I did not know. And when you look back at who these teenagers were, it's incredible. Lonnie Price, Tanya right, Pinkins, right. like all of these right. amazing people who turned out to have really long careers. So it's not like they were hiring untalented individuals. These were incredibly right, talented right. teenagers. Didn't they have the older version and the younger version of the characters as separate actors? No, they oh, had at some the point teenagers. they did. So when they started out, they mm. did not, right? Yeah. So when they oh. first when they first did it on Broadway, they had the teenagers play the older uh-huh. and the younger, okay. and so right there you run the risk of it feeling like a college production, right? right? That you have all of these teenagers pretending to be jaded older people that are completely out of their that never works natural wisdom. Yeah. Then Harold Prince decided to set it in a gymnasium. So, like, the entire set was bleachers, like, at a high school auditorium at graduation. And it started at the graduation. Instead of following reverse chronology, it started at the graduation and then would flash back and then work its way back to the graduation. Mm -hmm. So all of those time jumps proved to be incredibly confusing. Mm -hmm. And then to make matters worse, they had everybody wearing sweatshirts and pants. Like that's always a winner. (laughs) (laughs) And that proved to be so confusing because, you know, it's not it's not a traditional show where you get to know a character and then see where they go. You're seeing a character where they end up and then needing to move backwards. Mm -hmm. And so audiences weren't sure who was who. They ended up like exactly. So then they ended up like Mickey Mouseketeer style, just putting the name of the character on the sweatshirt. So, like, you had Frank, who was the first, who was, like, the lead, and then, like, Mary, his friend, to try and help the audience figure out what was (laughs) going on. Gilligan's Island. So, without the benefit of a tryout, this is what's happening on Broadway in previews. They have six weeks of previews during which a lot of stuff gets changed, including swapping out the lead for... Uh, Jim Walton, who was in the ensemble, who has since become a, a big star. He starred in Crazy for You, among other things. Anyway, the revised version opens, but at this point, word of mouth has been so bad, including yeah. Sondheim freaks like you and me, uh, who had walked out during the show on previews because they just couldn't follow what on earth was happening, mm-hmm. that the show just can't really recover from from that kind of bad press and closes after only a few performances. Kind of a crazy story. But what is amazing is that those really talented kids get into the studio before the or I think after the show closes and make a cast album. And Mm -hmm. that cast album is filled with glorious Stephen Sondheim music. I've heard that that is actually pretty wonderful. That people heard long after the show had closed. And when you listen to that cast album, you're like, 
well, this show has to be fantastic. And that has encouraged them to keep revising it and revising it until now we have a show that you can say you either like or don't, but it's performable and understandable and interesting. Yeah, <laughs> at the very least. It's performable. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, okay, here's a quote from Sondheim about when the show opened. He said uh, in the Daily News, I was very happy with the New York production by the time it opened. The show was in extremely poor shape in the early previews. It was too cluttered, and that's when a lot of the bad word of mouth started. But we did a lot of work on it, and the audiences who saw it during the two weeks of its official run loved it. I don't want to comment on the reasons for the bad reviews, but I don't think they had much to do with the intrinsic quality of the show. So even looking back on it, he just has this like amazing attitude of like, yeah, who cares? So so it was a flop. Take it or leave it. <laughs> you can't do that. Right? No, exactly. I'd like to see you try. And I mean, that is kind of the thing is that when you write, not a day goes by. Right. And then someone criticizes it. You're like, yeah, yeah, right. Like you can write yeah, a better no. song. Yeah, exactly. Let me see your alternative <laughs> and then we can talk. Oh, I guess the, this would be a good time to say that the show, the script, was written by George Firth, who had done Company. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was a reunion of sorts for Hal Prince, Stephen Sondheim, and George Firth, who had you know basically changed musical theater forever by writing Company. Uh, so the expectations were high, which I think is a, a, maybe another reason why this show bombed in the way that it did. Now, in general, I think in musical theater... Shows that mess with the time continuum, like with chronology, often don't succeed. This show didn't didn't succeed the last five years, hasn't ever really been a commercial hit, and yet both are shows that theater people love. Do you have any ideas as to why that might be? Like, why would a general audience not enjoy this type of approach to storytelling, but then us theater folk are like, it's the best thing ever? (laughs) I mean, I'm always, maybe I'm not the person to ask how normal people think because I'm like these are always <laughs> divergent. I mean, you're like I can't stand the sound of music and the Wizard of Oz, so I, you know, I'm not even really American that way. <laughs> like, get out of here. <laughs> but uh, primarily, people like to be comfortable. Americans like to be comfortable, right? And when you when you start at the end and you don't, you can't quite figure where you are. You're sitting in this really uncomfortable place that m- most people don't want to be and you have to work through it and I think a lot of people just aren't w- willing to do it they're there for an evening of entertainment and that's pretty much the extent of it I'm different in that when I like to see a play I don't like to know the story I don't want to know anything about it I want to be confused and I want to kind of struggle my way out of it I don't know that's maybe that's my philosophy background but I can't <laughs> maybe I don't, that's saying a lot more about myself I, than I even realized <laughs> yeah I mean but I don't like to make things easy for myself so the structure really worked for me I mean, Mm. just that that first lyric of how did we get to be here was like a challenge for me. I didn't I didn't mind things like hearing Beth sing Not a Day Goes By and having not the slightest clue why. So I I guess I kind of like that murder mystery kind of feel to slowly work my way back to the beginning or the root cause. And um, because that's because that's kind of life. Right. I mean, when you meet people. It's generally meeting, not oh, that's so at true. their beginning, right? You're not at You're their totally beginning. You're totally right. You have to start that process of discovering who they are. And, and that's largely by finding out where they've been. 
and and that's why it's so exciting. I mean, that's what makes dating so much fun. And uh, and then you get married and know everything about them and it's boring. <laughs> and then no. you're like, can there be just Kidding. a little bit of mystery? Yeah, but no. But that 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 aha moment when you put the pieces together is fun to me. And I think that a lot of times as Americans we're lazy and we don't want to work for that. So that's so fascinating. This this show has suddenly feels more relevant than I even thought it would be, Big which is like. We're constantly judging each other right now, choosing sides. Either you vote this way or you vote that way or you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask. And we're meeting people at the end of their story, so to speak, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the same way that we are here. We're meeting these characters in a very specific place, in a very heated, extreme place without any context clues of why they're there to begin with. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating, even reading it, even sitting down and trying to read it and and going through with the cast album. I was really aggravated for most of the first act. (laughs) But simply because I've been raised in a society where storytelling goes beginning, Mm -hmm. middle, end. Yeah. Beginning, middle, end. There's an expectation. Yes, from elementary Mm -hmm. school. That is how my brain works and takes in information. And when you completely flip it without, like, unapologetically, really. Yeah, yeah. It's like a mind F-bomb. It is. This play defies expectation. And, you know, I told you that I love anything the challenge is what we know, what we think we know, and mm-hmm. our preconceptions or our misconceptions about people we think we have figured out. And that's yeah. a lot of the reason why stories like Wicked and, and Maleficent speak to me. You know, anything that shows us not just where we are, but how we got there, mm. and anything that reveals the multidimensional and sympathetic nature of seemingly simplistic or overlooked characters. That's fascinating to me. And yeah. I think I think that's what this show is for me. But in a greater sense, like you were saying, it's kind of what this country is for me right now. I think so much is being revealed to me about the people in my life and who they are, who they really are, and mm-hmm. what they stand for. And it challenges my understanding of who I really know, like really know. What do we really know about the people that we think we know, about the people that we think we know best, let alone everybody else around us? When pushed to that edge and their defenses are down, who are they going to be? And was that what we expected? And and then what do we do with that? And does I mean, does that make any sense at all? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, your, your good friend or your family member says something and it and it takes you aback. You mm-hmm. think, wait, what is that what you've always believed? How did I not know that? And mm-hmm. and did I know that and just choose not to see it? And what does that mean for our relationship? And can we even still have one? And can I even respect you at this point? And what does that say about myself if I do? So I, I don't know. I mean, this is this is kind of like our we can never go back to before moment to be a total musical <laughs> nerd about it. But this whole <laughs> pandemic, economic and social crisis has been absolutely revelatory to me. And I hear that a lot from people. You are one of the reasons why I still go on Facebook, because in the past, well, I don't know. I don't know how long it's been time. Since Armageddon <laughs> happened. So, seriously. <laughs> But you have really kind of stepped up and been a voice of of understanding because many people preach from a pulpit and use social media to 
tout ideals and morals, but you really write some interesting stuff that forces us to be uncomfortable and to seek understanding more than comfort. What led you to do that? Because you haven't always done that on social media. Yeah, at least not, that I I'm, had seen. Honestly, I'm not a social media person. I struggle with that as a performer. You know, we're supposed to be all into that now, but I just right. I'm kind of a private person and I don't I don't really like to share my life on that level. But for whatever reason, people come to me when they have questions or or discomforts around the area of race. And so I found that I was answering all of these questions, but then I was doing it repeatedly. You know, they, mm. people, different people would ask me the same question or I'd comment on somebody's post. You know, I'd rebut an argument and then I'd have to do that on everybody's post. You know what I mean? I kept repeating yeah. myself and I thought, well, I guess these are these are important questions that are being asked. And and it's and I'm glad that people want to know. And then sometimes people just have these horrible misconceptions that I feel like should be cleared up. And so I thought it, it would be socially irresponsible for me to not speak up and say something that everybody can hear. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just I decided that I would, you know, do what I could to help people understand what we're going through. And I think that, you know, a lot of people really honestly are confused about it. I mean, some people ask questions just to be contentious. Sure. But a lot of people are, are, are on that fence where they really just don't know what to believe. And I, I hope that... I mean, it's on two levels. Some people just don't don't know where to stand and what to believe. And I hope that I can give them a reason to believe in something more positive than they may be inclined to. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, there were people who just felt like they didn't know how to respond when they were asked these questions. They didn't have an intelligent or an informed way to respond. And so I hope that when I post something, they go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, OK, I agree with that. And that's what I'm going to use to respond to people in my life who challenge me on that issue. Like hopefully they'll take my idea and then, you know, make it better with their ideas. But I think that's initially why I started um, just because I didn't want there to be so many unanswered questions out there. I love that. That's so beautiful because so much of arguing, at least from this like really shallow place is who has the better answer, who has like the better. It's true. But if you, if you seek understanding, then it's actually about communication. It's not right. about winning an argument. Right. I think right. that's and really that's, beautiful. And that's, you know, it's to, to open up a dialogue, hopefully. And, you know, there are a lot of people who all they want to do is challenge you and they don't want to learn and grow. But then there are, you know, those few people who are like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't see it that way. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you can reach those few people, it's powerful and it makes exposing you know, my personal life worth it. It's not something I would usually be comfortable with, but it makes it more worth it if it helps people relate to people who are not like them or understand their situation a little bit better. Wow. Good for you. I mean, we keep talking about comfort versus discomfort, and it was something that you had to push through yourself Yeah, definitely. in order to help people find something else, which is selfless, and I applaud you for that. Well, I don't know that I'd call myself, but I certainly try and I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, let's talk through the show, shall we? Um, We're going to push through the discomfort and try to, because I, when I thought about talking through the score in the show, I'm like, maybe we should just reverse it and talk from beginning to end. And I'm like, no, that's literally going against everything the show stands for. So we're going to try and go through it as is written. It starts out at a Hollywood party. Our lead characters are successful artists who 
for better or worse, are dealing with that level of fame and success. The main guy is named Franklin Shepard, also known as Frank. He has a wife named Gussie, who is a Broadway singer-actress. They're at a party celebrating the release of his new film as a producer. And so there's this song entitled, is it That Frank? I think so, yeah. It was originally called like Rich and Happy. But it's that very it's that very famous Sondheim bum 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 bum. And so you're hearing, you know, all of the kind of stereotypical jaded stuff that you would imagine you'd hear at a Hollywood party. And everyone is talking about him, saying how successful he is, and yet nobody's really giving him a compliment as a person. And then at some point through this, you know, of course it's Sondheim, so it's a complex song scene, you realize that the star of this movie, the new ingenue girl, is having an affair with Frank, that they have, like, started sleeping together. And so he is spending most of his party trying to keep her away from the wife until finally that doesn't work anymore. Gussie basically attacks the girl, throws mm-hmm. iodine in her, in her eyes. Face. Yeah. <laughs> it's lovely. I mean, this is how the show starts. It's intense, yeah. It's so extreme. You're seeing people at their... It's like starting Hamilton by just with the duel, right? right? Yeah. It's like, how on earth do you create some sort of empathy for Aaron Burr at that point? Right. No, everybody's completely unlikable. Yeah. And you also have Mary, who is... We just keep hearing is like a lifelong friend of Frank, and she is drunk as a skunk and mm-hmm. she also is kind of being the truth teller right mm-hmm. the bitter. annoying bitter truth drunk. teller thank you yeah. yes 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 uh bitter would be the word for it just kind of yelling out things we also find out there was kind of like a third member of this friendship of frank and mary and then there was a guy named charlie and he's a successful playwright but you are not allowed to say his name in frank's presence mm-hmm. like he's dead so that's the first scene. <laughs> it's a lot, right? It's a lot to take in. It's a lot of information. There's no like standard song. It's, you know, all of these bits of information. And you can't follow any of the the traditional rules of exposition. Yeah, it's the moment where you you either close your mind to it or you accept the challenge. Yeah, you're like, and all you, right, and you let's trust go. you trust that it will all be revealed. Exactly, you're yeah. exactly right. The next scene goes now back in time, and we go back to our merrily we roll along song, and they count us back a couple of years. And this next part of the story happens at a TV station, and now we see Frank, we see Mary, and now we see Charlie, who is the one that's not supposed to have been, you know, talked about. Mm -hmm. And they're at this TV studio. We find out Frank and Charlie were writing partners, like musical theater writing partners. They've been very successful. They've had great shows. And then Frank decided to start doing Hollywood, to start producing films, and just basically told Charlie... We'll get back to writing. We'll get back to writing. Just let me do this film first. It'll make us lots of money, and then we'll be able to write whatever we want. Well, that keeps happening. And as Charlie and Frank go on air to do this, you know, this interview, the interviewer lets it slip that 
Frank has signed like a three picture deal. So now he's not going to be available to write any musicals for quite some time. And Charlie loses it. <laughs> Flips. He flips, and he has this amazing number called Franklin Shepard, Inc., yeah. in which he describes what it's like to work with someone like Frank. And he's doing this all on the air. So I'm sure the TV producers were just having yeah. a field yeah. day with the kind of drama that were going on that was yeah. going on. Mary's looking on with horror and is trying, I think, throughout this whole scene to maintain the peace. She's yeah. kind of the mediator. Yeah. Mary's Maybe, a bit more sober at this point. Yeah, she, you're right. You're right. We, we go, yeah. get back to sobriety yeah. in degrees she's, she's in this show for poor Mary. Sober, yeah. There is a great lyric in that song that Mary has being old friends, and then it goes into Like It Was. And I want to actually read that lyric. Trouble is, Charlie, that's what everyone does, blames the way it is on the way it was, mm-hmm. on the way it never, ever was. Mm-hmm. He's kind of introducing this idea of nostalgia that maybe things weren't as great as they used to be, but the miracle about how things used to be is that they're not the way things are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's what we're struggling with now. Exactly. Make America great again. <laughs> At what point was it great? And for who? Yeah, exactly. It's such a disaster that Frank basically says, uh, you're dead to me, Charlie. You've embarrassed me on air. Uh, we're done. We're through. So that is the moment that we get to see why they're no longer friends. Right. At this point, we still haven't heard a single thing good about Frank. Mm-hmm. So we're in scene two, and our leading actor has yet to have one redeeming quality. Uh-huh. It's difficult. It's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> it For sure. Yeah. I mean, well, you keep asking yourself, why do we care? Why do I care? Mm-hmm. But I don't give up hope. We may care. We just we might. We might. We still got a whole evening to go. Because, because I have to say, already, I care a little bit, a little bit more about Mary. I'm starting mm. to see a little bit more of who she is to them. Mm-hmm. So, baby steps. Uh, speaking of baby steps, the next thing we go to is 1968. Oh, so I guess I should have said this takes place in the 70s. Sorry, everybody. Now we're in 1968 in the mm-hmm. late 60s. And Frank is coming back to his apartment after uh, after being on a cruise. Mm-hmm. And Charlie and Mary are coming to see him. Like a long cruise, right? Like an eight-month cruise, something like that, nine months? Yeah, it was. Okay. I mean, it was a good chunk of time. Yeah. And they're coming to see him, to welcome him back. Charlie has his son, Frank Jr., but we don't see Frank's wife. Instead, who we do see is Gussie, who we now realize wasn't his first wife. It was, in fact, his second wife. And she comes in, once again, this big Broadway star. We find out that she flew and got on the cruise with him. Right. So they ended the cruise together. Mm-hmm. And Charlie and Mary are like, this isn't good. You already broke up your marriage because of her. Don't break up her marriage because she is still married. Right, right. Her husband comes into that scene, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to have any idea that she's planning to leave him. You don't think he knows? I think he knows. I mean, I think he knows, but I don't think she's, he thinks, I think he hasn't accepted it. Well, he hasn't accepted the fact that she might leave him. Exactly. I think she, you know, there's. Especially when you have like these eccentric types, I think as your partners, you're like, all right, well, they'll go That's sleep with do. somebody. That's yes. what they do. And but then they'll they come, come back, back to, to me. Norm. Yes, exactly. 
But as it turns out, she's like, no, I'm going to leave him. And because we've already seen that, in fact, she did, we know that that this is serious. When Franklin is left alone to kind of consider all of this, he starts to sing the song called Growing Up. Um, this wasn't one of my favorite songs, I've got to admit. Yeah. It was one of the more forgettable ones, I think. Like the most important thing about the song, if I'm not mistaken, is that it has the motif of Good Thing Going, which is like one of the most famous songs. Yeah. yeah. And so it's the first time that we hear this motif that we later learn has been a huge part of his career so far. Mm-hmm. It's more interesting from an intellectual place than from a musical place even. Mm-hmm. So that's how that one ends, is that we find out that Gussie is leaving her husband for Frank. I'm going to stop you for a second, because I Please. think this scene is really important, because it's that moment when he decides to go from who he was to who he will be. Like mm. This is that deciding moment, that choice that he makes. And I also think this scene is significant, because it's the first time you really see their friendship, like what their friendship is. So then that choice to divert from that connection is really interesting. Wow. So I think this scene is an important one. You're right. This is the turning point. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that it happens with him at a piano trying to figure Mm -hmm. things out. Mm -hmm. And he still makes the wrong decision. Yeah, well, we often do. But I think sometimes we think that wrong decisions are impulsive and and don't have any thought behind them. But Mm -hmm. here he is, like, working things out on the piano Mm -hmm. and doesn't listen to the people who love him. Maybe he listens. He doesn't choose to take their advice. Mm -hmm. And for better or worse, makes a decision that leads him down a different path. Yeah, it defines the direction the rest of his life is going to go in. This actually brings me to my big hot take about Merrily We Roll Along. Are you ready? Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Okay. My hot take on Merrily Roll Along, because it's about making choices and the paths that they lead, as well as the struggle of what it is to be a successful artist. I think Into the Woods plus Sunday in the Park with George equals Merrily We Roll Along, which means that the 1980s portion of Sondheim's career was Merrily We Roll Along. It started out... (laughs) (laughs) With Merrily, then went to Sunday in the Park with George, and finally into the woods, which, in fact, the equation is the other way around. This is interesting. I don't, it's not not obvious to me. No, I totally get it. But just even. I do see a lot of parallels between Frank and George. I do. Yeah. I will give you that. And even I would say Frank and the baker or the baker's wife. Um, yeah. Do you really know what you want? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you get it, is it what you wanted? You, yeah, if you know what you, you want, may know what you, you want, but to get what you, you need. Get it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I can see that. And and I think that the city is a little woodsy, right? That that growing up, like people go into the woods to make decisions to right. to uh, grow up, essentially. Yeah. And New you York City takes person. over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I see anyway, that. You're just my, deeper than I ever thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so meta. I, I'm obsessed. <laughs> You're deep. I love it. <laughs> okay, so the end of the act is yet another step backward, and we see the dissolve of his first marriage, which is to a woman named Beth, who I believe is the best character in the show. 
She's certainly a really interesting character. I think she's such a w- interesting, well-written character. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't even get to meet her until the end of Act One. Anyway, it's just the the point at which she's introduced in the show and what she gets to do. Oh, yeah. I'm upset. If I was a woman, I would love. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And it, it so, you know what? It relies on it being a fantastic actress. Yeah. Because she does start at this moment where you're like, "What are you even singing about? I have no idea what you're talking about." Mm-hmm. To make that work, I mean, to to sing Not a Day Goes By and have people be engaged when they have no idea why you're singing it is like, that's huge. To be interested in your pain when. Right. No when I don't know how you is. got there. What do you what is your problem? Even I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why are we here? So right. to, 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 to see the beauty and the poignancy in that song, even though you don't know, really relies on a fantastic actress. And I've been lucky enough to see them. That's great. It made me think of the movie Kramer versus Kramer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that movie? Mm-hmm. And yeah. like Meryl Streep comes in and is like this unsympathetic woman who's leaving yeah. her child, you yeah. know, and still manages to like make something out of the performance. But like that is where you're meeting. You're meeting this character at her worst, yeah. which yeah. includes taking her child away from his father. Right. That's a really good um, comparison. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> the scene is at their divorce hearing. Now, it always makes me laugh when either in shows or in films, like there's so much fame that comes with being a writer because I don't I've never witnessed that so much. (laughs) I haven't either. It's like I don't know. Maybe this is an underground world where writers are super important. But I I haven't seen it. So like they're at a courthouse where these divorce proceedings are happening. And there's this like paparazzi crew who's who's like so interested in, you know, whether Frank's divorce is going to go through and what dirt there is. I'm like, Literally no one cares. It is a little odd. But, you know, in the day, that probably was how it was for Rodgers and Hammerstein. I can see. Like, they were the celebrity of the day. It's just that in the 60s and 70s, you know, I don't know. I mean, everybody was obsessed with Sondheim's personal life when he wrote Company. So maybe maybe he experienced a little bit of that. I don't know. I can't imagine they experienced a lot of paparazzi situations. But, yeah. Right? That is a little artificial. But for whatever reason, they needed another high stakes moment. So at these divorce proceedings, you realize that Gussie has been brought in to testify. So she's being forced to testify, which, oh, maybe that's the reason why the the paparazzi is there. Because Gussie's there. Because now they know that there's this star. And so maybe the Mm -hmm. star was sleeping with the composer, you Mm -hmm. know, whatever. You get the idea that Beth wants a confession she wants to know for sure whether or not they hooked up so finally beth and frank get alone and she sings not a day goes by Mm -hmm. which is a stunning sondheim song that we've mentioned before because he asked doesn't he ask do do you love me or do you still love me do you still Mm -hmm. love me and that was yeah like how could you do this to me because She's taking every penny that he's worth, you know, every penny that he's made from his success as a composer. She's taking his son. She's taking everything. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying, do you have any feelings for me whatsoever? And she responds by saying, not only that, but I'll be haunted by it for the rest of my life. Right. Until the day I die. It's a beautiful song. Gorgeous song. And in being able to express that, they, they come this close to peace. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And right in that moment, that's when the paparazzi storms in and ruins everything. And she's like, I can't take this anymore. 
he confesses to having a relationship with Gussie, and that's the end. That's the end of the first mm-hmm. act. It's a weird place to end. And then is. you go to intermission. Oh yeah. my gosh. I feel like I just lost like most of the listeners. They're like, this is no. this show's terrible. No, because at that point I'm like, why did she just sing that? What happened? Why? Which what? What? Why? I mm-hmm. uh, see for me, I'm it makes me really curious. I want to oh, know, good. first of all, who she is. I'm like, it's the end of the act and we're just meeting this character. Who is this person? And what is she talking about? So it, it leaves me kind of on the edge of my seat, curious to learn more in the second act. That's great. I would say that for me, it would probably be a little bit more of I spent this much on a theater ticket. <laughs> I want to know how this thing, where it goes from here. But I would say that the first act is not an enjoyable experience for me. And the second act, I really enjoy, which is kind of the opposite, I think, for most people. I think a lot of people find a lot of problems in the second act, just in terms of construction, that all of the exciting things happen in the first act. And in the second act, you just kind of see how it all gets resolved. In this, it's, of course, exactly the opposite. I agree You're... with you. I think the second act is the better act. But I think the problem with the, the, peop- the problem people have with the first act is that it makes them uncomfortable and people don't like to yeah. sit with discomfort. Totally on the same page. And Uh, I do think, I will tell you, I will say, I can see that every scene is too long. And so I think it's easy to lose people because of that overindulgence. I think that's. Well, you have only four scenes in the entire first act. You're right. Yeah. They need to to break them up and maybe add another scene or just have it be shorter, really. But it's every scene is a little overly indulgent. And so it's, it's just asking a lot. Yeah, you're right. It's like, did we have to throw iodine in the eyes? It, yeah, it, Can it she just, a, like, push her or something? Every scene gets to a good place, and then it goes too far. And you're like, did yes. we need that? I don't think we needed that. So oh, my gosh. This is, this is right on the money. Right yeah. on the money. So if you go see Merrily, we roll along. You know what? Take a purse. Even <laughs> if you're a dude, take a purse. It's fine. No one cares. You're at the theater. Take a purse. Put a little chocolate chip cookie in there. You know? <laughs> During intermission, go outside, take in a little chocolate, a little bit of chocolate chip cookie heaven. You'll be fine because you rewarded yourself for sitting through the discomfort. And now act two is going to make you feel very happy you did. Yes, you're growing as a person. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So act two starts. Now we're in the early 60s in 1964. And we are at the opening night of the Broadway show called Musical Husbands that Frank and Charlie have written, starring Gussie. Yes. And the whole show or the whole scene starts with like a recreation of what's going on in the show. It's it's Gussie singing this like 11 o'clock number that gives way to a little bit more of Good Thing Going. So now we're starting to get more of that song. And then we go to the alley where we see Charlie, Mary, and Frank once again. They are not in the theater watching the show because Charlie's wife has gone into labor. And so he needs to get in the cab and go to the hospital. Instead of going to the cast party, they're going to go to the hospital mm-hmm. to, to see him. But they, they're just going to stay and listen to the applause outside of the door. And they have a tape recorder. For those listening, tape recorders were uh, <laughs> <laughs> you remember those were a device. No, so that they could record the applause and play it for Charlie later at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Also, backstage with them is Beth. Yeah, mm-hmm. the ex-wife. 
now she's in a very happy marriage with Frank and could not be more supportive of his career. And you begin to realize this is when I really very quickly turn a corner with this character the kind of deception that she's had to go through. Right. Yeah. She's the victim. By being the most supportive wife an yeah. artist could hope for. And then and he friend. goes and cheats on she's her. She's such and a friend. wonderful friend. Like you see that connection that all four of them have and that she's completely supportive and embracing of that relationship. It's She reveals herself as a really beautiful person. And she has her parents at the mm-hmm. theater who think that Frank is... That he doesn't have a real job. Like, you know, like the last person they wanted their daughter to marry was a musical composer, right? But they have a hit on their hands. It's a hit. The applause is huge. They're so excited. They sing a song called It's a Hit. Beth has this really great lyric that I wanted to share about what it's like being married to to Frank, especially when her parents disapprove. Will their faces be stony when they see on their Sony someone handing the phony the Tony Award? I love that. I love that. Isn't that a great lyric? It's pretty Oh, my gosh. Everybody is enjoying the success of how long they've struggled Mm -hmm. to have a show. And they honestly couldn't be more grateful for a Broadway star like Gussie to be performing in it because Mm -hmm. it brought the attention that, that they had been needing. There's still that innocent optimism. yeah. For sure. So everybody goes to the hospital except for Frank because he decided that he's going to just, you know, say congratulations to everybody on behalf of all those who went to the hospital and then take off. And while he's there, Gussie comes out saying, you've written this amazing score for me. Now let me show you all of the wonderful things that come from being a success. And it's a great button to the end of the scene Mm -hmm. because she walks off, you know, she walks off the stage and he's standing there in this theater and he presses his tape recorder and hears that applause that he's recorded. Mm -hmm. And just this image of him slowly being seduced by success and fame and applause. And what does that mean? And what does that take you away from? He's no longer going to the hospital. Yeah, that's the moment where he redefines his priorities, Mm. that they all go to support Charlie's wife at the hospital. And then Gussie is able to sort of seduce him because of that choice. It's a defining moment. What do you think of Gussie? Uh, You know. Like, do you think she's a stereotypical character or do you think she's interesting? I mean, I think she's meant to be that caricature. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much we're supposed to see her as a real sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. She certainly isn't written that way. There's not a lot of opportunity to flesh out anything really honest about her. So I tried. I, it was interesting because I tried to find that relatable, sympathetic quality to her character. And I just don't think it's there. She's been completely swallowed up by the fame monster, mm-hmm. as Gaga would say. Yeah, yeah. Her husband, Gussie's husband, is the producer of this show. And so the next scene that we go back in time to look at is 1962, where Frank, Charlie, and Mary, and then Beth, you know, Frank's first wife, are at a party at Gussie and her husband Joe's elegant apartment. And Mm -hmm. everybody who's anybody is there. And there's this great song called The Blob in which this crowd of names and and who's who are referred to as this conglomerate entity Mm -hmm. known as The Blob. Mm -hmm. That you need them in order to be a success. And yet, as soon as they're a part of you, 
they suck out all of the integrity of who mm-hmm. you are and what you're all about. Have you felt any of this in your career? No, I don't. I'm conscious of not allowing that to happen to me. Yeah. But I will say it does limit where you can go when you're not willing to make that concession. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of I the time. That. There are exceptions. Sure. But I have denied myself many opportunities because I did not want to sell myself out. You didn't want so, to play that game. Yeah. So I think that's that's definitely a challenge that a lot of actors have to reconcile with. <sighs> that's tricky. It it's is, it's it a tricky, tricky thing to maneuver. It is tricky. When you don't allow it to happen, you re- have to rely more on talent. Well, there you go. <laughs> At this party, Frank and Charlie believe that they have this show that they've written that Gussie's husband is going to produce. And they've been working so hard on it. They're so proud of it. It has it has exactly the message that they want to bring to the world, the theater community. And when they finally get their alone time with the producer, he says, basically, Gussie's a huge star. She's been in so many Broadway shows. All of them have flopped. What we need is a hit. And you guys are talented. And so you're going to write her a hit. And they're like, oh, well, we've already written a show. It's really, really terrific. And he's like, yeah, that's great. But what we need is a hit. Mm-hmm. We need you to write a show that is... Hummable. Hummable. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. With this, that moment where he decides to sell himself out. Because they believe in this piece that they're writing. But he's like, well, I'll, all right, I guess if that's more. Well, and there's the there's this promise once again where it's like, make the money. Yeah. And then I'll be able to money, do what I really want to do. And then I'll be able to do whatever I want. Yeah. I think, and that, that, that's it. I think he always intended to go back to that place. Like, I'll just, I'll make the money, we'll be comfortable, and then we'll be able to do what we want to do. And also, isn't that so much of what we go through, too? Because it always seems like money's the problem. Always. Yeah. yeah. Right? When I just have enough money, then everything will be great because I'll be able to do whatever, whatever. Yeah. If you're looking at the Sondheim way of things, I mean, he's got to be wealthy, right? Oh, yeah. Royalties and all that. Yeah. Even for shows that weren't successful on Broadway. Yeah. yeah. And granted, later on, then they've got film rights to Sweeney Todd and Into Mm -hmm. the Woods. And you can, I guess, argue whether or not he sold out by allowing some of those changes to be made to those. Yes. Do you feel that way? I do. Yeah. I think the original piece was so brilliant. Which one specifically? Into the Woods. Yeah. And I just, I really didn't like what he did to the movie. But, you know. I think he's at a place in his career where he doesn't need to prove himself anymore. Exactly. You know, he's like, let me retire in style. I've done the hard work. Now I'm going to relax. If you want to see what we intended first, go watch the movie with Angela Lansbury and Uh George Hearn. It's fantastic. Great. At the end of this party, Gussie gets Frank and Charlie to finally sing their song. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. until this point, all throughout the show, we've heard pieces of good thing going and it's also maybe the most pop song that Stephen Sondheim has ever written for a show. I mean, it is. Yeah, it's pretty pop. And they sing it for the crowd. The Blob loves it. The Blob <laughs> loves it so much that they ask them to sing it again. And Charlie's like, no, let's not sing it again. You need to leave the audience wanting more. And Frank's like, no, they want it. They love it. Let's do it again. So they start the song again. And as they start singing, the Blob starts like taking over the song. Yeah. It's this really weird moment, it's but I love really it. It's a really weird moment. It's like Charlie's being violated or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you're seeing someone being raped. It's just a really bizarre moment. They have this like beautiful song that was so 
pristinely presented the first time, and、yeah. then the second time, people are laughing, people are talking、yeah. over them. It's like、Ooh. morphed into this gross, like funhouse image. Yeah. Now we turn back the time,、uh, even two more years. Now it's 1960, and isn't this so crazy? Because I'm like, what happens next? And it's like, no, we already know what happens next. It's like, what happened <laughs> what before happened that? Before, yeah. What happened before that was a nightclub act that Charlie, Frank, and Beth all performed in. Poor Mary. We should give Mary a little shout out at this point、yeah. because she's a writer and she wrote this really popular book. Like she wrote a novel, it becomes like a huge bestseller, and then it seems like as she gets dragged down by the drama of her two friends、mm-hmm. fighting constantly, she loses all of her artistic energy. All of her just... energy goes into being the peacekeeper、mm-hmm. and the glue. That holds their relationship together, and so there's nothing left for her. But at this nightclub, the three are performing a review that they wrote, and it's political in nature. So it's 1960. Kennedy was just、uh, elected. So the song that they do is called "Bobby and Jackie and Jack." Yeah, yeah, it's clever. Silly. It is. It's, Silly, it's super clever. clever. It's like both celebrating the dynasty of the Kennedys、yeah. because at least it meant that Nixon didn't win the presidency. Right, and it's the first time we see that Beth was a performer. Yes,、yeah. so she was their leading lady,、mm-hmm. and very graciously once again stepped aside so that Gussie, this more famous woman, could come into the picture and then ultimately took over everything. Right after this number, Beth and Frank are going to get married. Mm-hmm. So her parents came to see this show. They don't like it, of course, because it's like it's, it's political satire,、yeah. silly satire. But they're going to get married, and we find out it's because Beth is pregnant.、Mm-hmm. And there's this great moment in the script where Beth turns to Frank and says, "Frank, I need to tell you something. I'm not actually pregnant." And he's like, "What?" She's like, "I know, and I don't know what to do. The only reason we were getting married was because of the baby." And Frank goes, "No, I want to marry you because of you." And she's like, "Oh, thank goodness, I'm actually pregnant." <laughs> <laughs>、yeah. So they are in love and want to get married. This is where it starts to get sad because you're like, "Oh my gosh, these people were so good together. How、yeah. did it end so badly?"、Uh, th- that's the last time we see Beth because then we go even earlier to 1959. This is that great Sondheim song, "Opening Doors." Opening doors, love it. And we have Frank as the composer. We have Charlie as the lyricist. We have Mary as the writer, and they are all working in their own fields to make a mark, to truly make marks as creative people in、mm-hmm. their own way. And they're clawing and working like crazy to make it happen. And they really don't have anything to show for it,、mm-hmm. you know. And that's the truth about. Maybe that's maybe it's just kind of prophetic and amazing that you do have so much energy when you're younger because it takes that much energy to get through all、yeah. of that failure. <laughs> yeah, right. Also, during this scene, we see the backers audition that Charlie and Frank play for Gussie's husband. We find out that they actually auditioned for him long ago. At this point, with、mm-hmm. the show that they really believe in, and now he's like this powerful man. And、mm-hmm. when we saw him before, he was like just this pathetic shell of who he was. He was like he was、yeah. like begging Gussie for money or something. You're so exactly you, right. The beginning, you see him as this totally broken man, and you're like, who's this loser that she just、right. you know she's with? The, now, this Broadway star is just kind of walking all right. over. Right. And now is when we see, oh, this is who he was. 
And not only that, but his secretary introduces them. And who is his secretary? Gussie. Mm-hmm. And she has a different nose. Talks She's, differently. She talks differently. Yeah. And you realize that all of this pretense, this facade, all comes from the insecurity that was there way before any of the mm-hmm. fame was. Yeah. Which I guess, I mean, I guess there is that slight opportunity to see more of that transition and how she gets from point A to point B. I just haven't seen it. I've never seen a production that has succeeded in doing that. I, I buy that. Now, of course, that scene ends with Joe, the the producer, passing on the show because we, of course, know that they don't work together until he hires them to write a hit instead of something with meaning. <laughs> the final scene is in October of 1957, and this is the moment where the three make their pact to be friends forever. Frank and Charlie are on the roof of an old apartment, and they are up there because Sputnik, the the satellite, is going to be orbiting the Earth. And so they're up there waiting to see Sputnik. And Frank has been in the Army, so he's about to be released from the Army, and he's going to move in with Charlie. Charlie's been writing plays, and it's really inspired Frank as a composer himself. He's like, I've spent all of this time in the Army. Meanwhile, you've been writing plays and doing this incredible stuff. And Charlie's like, dude... You should write too. We should write together. We should be musical theater partners. And mm-hmm. so that pact is made. Right then, Mary comes up to the roof with binoculars mm-hmm. and in curlers and in pajamas, <laughs> also wanting to see Sputnik. And she has with her her roommate, who is actually the woman that Charlie ends up marrying. And we realize that Charlie ended up marrying Mary's roommate. Mm-hmm. It's complex. Or overlooked Mary. And Mary comes up and her roommate is, you know, so embarrassed because she's they're both in curlers. And so she runs away. Mary, on the other hand, is like, that's eh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stand up, stay up here with the dudes. Now, let me know what you think about this. Mary was kind of in love with Frank from the get go. See, it's an interesting subtext because when every time you see her her supporting these relationships of his all throughout, you realize, God, that's got to be so painful. Mm. And there's even, oh, no, because there's even another moment on Beth and Frank's wedding night when he says, do you think I'm doing the right thing? Do you think I should marry her? And she has to let go of her and totally put her concern, you know, for him So she says, yeah, yeah, you need to do what you need to do. I support you. And that's, God, that's horrible. That's got to be the most painful thing in the world. But she never, she never betrayed her friendship through all of Mm. his relationships. And, And then you got the sense that when he had divorced Beth and he was about to get into a relationship with Gussie and they were trying to urge him not to, that she Mm -hmm. was hopeful that that might be something. Like, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. So then when it's we get so sad, it, it really, really is. Pathetic. And that, see, I totally related to that. I completely really? Why? related. That's like the story of my life. I've always been that Seriously? that girl that was, you know, one of the guys and the friend, but nobody ever thought of me romantically. So I was always in love with somebody that was in love with, you know, the beautiful whatever and wow. didn't think of me as anything but a friend. So I totally connected with that. And were you able, because what Mary wasn't ever able to do was to make some boundaries. She was very self-sacrificing and Mm -hmm. to a certain degree, that's like admirable. But at the end of the day, 
she went from, you know, someone with a, she calls herself a, a, having an addictive personality. And yeah. so she would never drink to then slowly but surely becoming. She completely a, lost herself. A mean, bitter drunk. Yeah. So yeah. were you able to at some point to like draw the line and be like, no, yeah. I need to. Yeah, I was uh, better than Mary at moving on and, and not letting it consume me. So it is. But it's sad to see. I mean, she is such a warm hearted wonderful person and supportive and how many people would be like yes you should marry her if that's what's going to make you happy you know what i mean right over and over she does this over and over throughout the play yeah but then we get to this scene and you see who she was and it's just so heartbreaking and you you see that first moment where she sees him and there's that little spark and then she hears that he's a composer and she thinks that's just the most the coolest thing ever you know yeah she's totally taken by him I mean, I think I think this last scene is one of the best scenes I've seen in any musical. It's just designed so brilliantly. You're left with such a sense of hopefulness and youthful enthusiasm that you almost want to burst. I mean, yeah. or maybe that's just me. I don't know. But, no. I mean, how do you walk away from the play with such a sense of exuberant optimism when you know how it ends? That's yeah. fascinating to me. I mean, that has to be brilliance in design because even though you know it all comes to a bad end, you really truly believe that they will succeed. You totally mm-hmm. buy into that final moment 100%. And see, that's something you just wouldn't get if the show were in reverse yeah. or chronological order. In chronological so order, so yeah. for all its clumsiness, I think that's what you gain. And that's worth it to me. That last scene is brilliance. If you saw this musical the other way around... You would leave going, oh, well, see, that's what happens yes. when you when you get famous. Yes. And instead, you leave going, oh, I so badly want to connect to that. Yeah. That part of me that I know yeah. is still in there. Because we all have it. We mm-hmm. all have that child, whether it's the one who loves splashing in puddles mm-hmm. or the one who lights up when he sees Mickey Mouse. You yeah. know, like whatever it is, there's something pure yeah. that that I think we leave the theater wanting to reconnect to. Exactly. It's there to remind you to find that again. And if it's the oh, other... If I just it, got if chills. It's, if it's the other way around, you just leave going, yep, that's life. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. It's clumsy. I, I admit it's clumsy, but I think it's I think it's worth it for what it gives you in the end. And the, the song that they end with, Our Time... Is beautiful. Just a gorgeous it's freaking song. Be- that whole scene is just perfectly constructed i mean the, the music everything about it it's the one scene that's not too long it's just it's perfect it's beautiful i think because of this order it allowed sondheim i think to write in a way that is less cynical than he's ever been able to do in his life yeah it's very anti-sondheim and I, you know part of me i wonder if given the current climate young people today are able to look at the world with that same innocent confidence in the future You know, it kind of makes me sad that they may not. Just a weird time in our history. How is your child doing with all of this? Do you know, I would have said she was doing really well, other than being super bored, being trapped with two old people all the time. Um, (laughs) But the other day we were talking about something. Oh, I think it was, there's like a science camp and you love science and you want to be a botanist. You want to take this camp. And she's like, no, there's not really any point. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, it really doesn't matter. Nothing matters. There's probably not even going to be a world. I'm like, of course there's going to be a world. She's like, it doesn't, maybe maybe we'll all be dead or maybe there'll be a war. Or maybe everybody will hate each other. Just the only thing that matters is YouTube, really. 
my God. That's horrible. Because wow. she's like straight A student. She's like that nerd that like when they when they announced that school wasn't going to be coming back into session last year, she was like, I'm so upset. I want to come to school and I have to get straight A's. And, you know, she's like a total nerd. She will admit yeah. that she's a science nerd. So to see her go from that I mean, she had her little um, dream big club. Every other Thursday, they would meet and they would talk about colleges. She's only in sixth grade, but they would talk about colleges and what you have to do to get into Harvard. And they would come up with their little strategy. Okay, I have to take this class and that class. And I have to get this grade in that class if I want to get into Harvard and then to get my master's. I mean, it was amazing what six year old, wow. six, sixth graders were talking about. And to go from that to nothing really matters but YouTube. I don't know. What's the point of anything? It's just so sad. It's so devastating. And the sad thing is, like, I can't make a strong argument, you know. For, I'm like, you know what? We just have to take every day by itself, mm -hmm. you know, take it for what it is and, you know, hope for the best. But it's just such a weird place in our history that we can't we can't give that to our children. I mean, in any sort of an honest way. Of course, you can be like, everything's going to be great. But if we're being honest, I don't even we know. Don't what, know. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. You know, mm -hmm. and and I don't think we're in a place where we can say you can be whatever you want to be. Like, it's nice to think that. But mm -hmm. there are real obstacles. And um, it's just a, a bizarre, bizarre place. And it's it's really sad how it's weighing on kids. I was talking to another parent yesterday and she was like, my child, I can't get him to leave the house. He doesn't want to go back to school. He is so paranoid about catching this virus. He's just so upset mm -hmm. and he's so constantly stressed. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I had thought these kids were just, you know, doing their little computer thing and breezing through it. But it's affecting them in in really intense, deep ways that I that I hadn't realized. So, wow, well, that's crazy. I my heart goes out to her. Uh, yeah. If there's anything we can do to lighten her spirits, <laughs> please let me know. I, I wonder if one of the profound natures of this show is that the consequence of saying I can do whatever I want and be whatever I want mm -hmm. ignores the cost of mm -hmm. that. Yeah, it doesn't address the cost. Yeah. That, well, that's always what we leave out, right? You yeah. have whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But we never talk about the cost. And if there's anything positive to come out of this, I wonder if kids, I, I don't want them to lose, you know, that once again, that purity, that childlike mm -hmm. perspective of the world. But I wonder if there's something helpful in saying there's a cost to things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the consequences are all around us. Yeah. We're giving them this world that we created. We can't, we have no one else to blame but ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And we're like, you guys, <laughs> can yeah. you do better? I, you know what? It's true though, because up until now, everything has been anecdotal, right? We tell them about all sure. these horrible things that happen, but now they're seeing the real consequences of these things. What happens yeah. when you don't address this and when you don't address that and people don't talk about that? Now they can see it and it's real yeah. to them. And so they can make the choice to to go a different path, to, to correct these things. Um, it's an impetus, I think, I hope, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a teacher all about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman and, you know, Ella Baker and whatever. But it's all just stories. Who's Ella Baker? I don't know that one. How dare you? 
And I'm that's so sorry. the thing. Like, Americans I don't, I, like, don't, I don't know. We don't know our history. It's so sad what this country has done to us, deprived us of our history, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. we know, we barely knew about John Lewis, right? Right. But nobody ever talks about Ella Baker, who was another revolutionary civil rights activist, right alongside really? Martin Luther King. And, and I named my daughter after her. And my <gasps> daughter's Ella. She's named after Aww. Ella Baker and Ella Fitzgerald and my dad. But, you know, we, we tell them all about these things, but it's all just a story to them. And now they're getting to see, oh, my God, this is what they fight, fought for. And this is what happens when people don't listen. And this is what happens when you have um, an uninformed government. And, the, like, they're seeing the real consequences of actions. And so yeah. I think that's important. If it doesn't break them, it will make them stronger. <laughs> Do you know? I mean, yeah. I mean, because, you know, when you don't see it, it doesn't mean as much to you. My goal as an artist is to be there to help with the trauma because the cost of that type of perspective is yeah. trauma. <laughs> but you know what, though? That's what art is. That's what's beautiful, which is why it's so sad when it's always, you know, the first to, to their Get funding's cut. always. Yeah. A lot of how we spent the beginning of this whole quarantine situation was just. Um, watching musicals and listening to musicals and discussing musicals and what is that about and what is it what is he trying to say and what does it really mean and getting into you know more political aspects of these things and social commentary and and that was a really interesting way for us to bond and and something that we wouldn't have had time to do otherwise so I think it's it's interesting that one of the least valued things in our culture is what we all are relying on during this time you know, and Agreed. I wonder if we'll ever come to a place where we appreciate that. Well, I I know that I want to be on the forefront of having those conversations, and I know that you do as well. And so I'm so grateful that you were spent some time with me today to talk about this. Well, thank you for forcing me to do it, because <laughs> contrary to what I initially thought, it actually was enjoyable. I enjoyed yes! spending some quality time with you in my closet. Yes. Look, the closet's the best place to do the podcast. That's what I'm telling you. Don't live your life in a closet unless you're recording a podcast. It's a little bit of peace, you know? (laughs) As always, if you have suggestions or recommendations for shows that we cover on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at A Musical Podcast for more great content. And check out our Tee Public store where we have designs paying homage to shows past and present. Jennifer, how can we follow you and all you're up to? Um, I'm antisocial, but <laughs> but I suppose so if you that. really wanted to, you could go to my website, jennifer-shelton.com. Which is actually really beautiful. It's a well, well-designed Thank you. website. I did it I myself. The other day, looked around. Lies. Did you really? Of course not. I'm so tech oh, impaired. David know. Zach did it for me. He's amazing. <gasps> oh, he? He's wonderful. Aww. And he put up with me. And I highly recommend him. Yes, David Zach. David Zach also has every score to every musical ever written. He's a theater nerd. God bless him. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't be the blob. <laughs> Bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.